0: music suggests that we are now in the heart of the festive season. I'm Chris Biddle with the final episode of Inside Agrita for 2023 and could I first wish all the listeners and followers of the podcast a very happy Christmas and a peaceful and rewarding new year. Although this is a niche podcast for a niche audience, we have been adding over 250 new listeners every month. So thank you, a reminder to click, follow or subscribe, free of charge of course, on any episode to ensure that new episodes are uploaded immediately on publication. But first an apology that I was unable to bring you a new episode last week for a most interesting and fascinating reason involving new tech in the healthcare sector. Over the past few years I've had a series of less than successful knee and Achilles operations, which has resulted in reduced mobility and ongoing pain. I've therefore just had a procedure which involved threading a lead up my spine and connected to a rechargeable battery which has been implanted in my back. I have a handheld controller the size of a small mobile phone. It's a smart piece of technology which monitors your muscle movements millions of times a day and sends the correct level of pulses to your spinal cord, and no, you won't see me leaning patiently against an electric vehicle charger at the local garage as it comes with a flat pad charging use unit used daily outside your clothes to recharge the battery. It's all very high tech, and this system is new and was developed in Australia. In fact, there were two representatives from the company on hand during the surgery. I go back later this week for the system to be precisely calibrated. And whilst I don't expect to be jumping around like the Duracell bunny immediately, I'm hoping for less pain and better mobility in the new year. Advances in technology today are quite extraordinary. Done privately, the operation would have cost many thousands of pounds, I did ask. But I was fortunate to have this done under the wonderful and much maligned NHS. But that's enough about my bionic conversion. It's the time of year to celebrate the many positives, gains, successes, achievements, and indeed the good-heartedness in most people. It's a shame that good news is rarely the currency of the media, or indeed those keyboard warriors who delight in spreading negative opinions or raging personal vendettas on social media. This specialised podcast focuses mainly, but not exclusively, on the agricultural and turf care machinery business. And I say not exclusively because it is an industry where the people make it tick, and it is on them that I have focused, rather than on products. To date, over 120 guests have featured on the show, and many of them have not had a close association with our industry, but all have had tales to tell. Advice to pass on and experiences to relate that are relevant to those working in this extraordinary industry. And today I'm introducing a new series, In the Mix, which will be published monthly. Tucked away in episodes spanning more than three years are some wonderful contributions which may well have passed you by. In the Mix will feature three or four extracts from memorable episodes packaged together in about 30 minutes. The main extracts will be 10 minutes or so, with an added short soundbite of an unforgettable moment from a more recent episode. So, on with the show. The first extract, we go back to the COVID years. It is taken from the first regular episode of Inside Agriturf, published in July 2020 and features Ruth Bailey, the CEO of the Agricultural Engineers Association, the AEA, representing manufacturers and suppliers, and Keith Christian, who was then General Manager of BAGMA, the British Agricultural and Garden Machinery Association, representing the interests of dealers. And they were discussing the role of trade associations when the industry was trying to establish its crucial role during the pandemic. At the time, they were two separate trade associations. BAGMA was owned by BIRA, the British Independent Retailers Association, but a year later, in July 2021, it was announced that AEA was to buy BAGMA to bring both associations under one roof, retaining their separate identities. So first I asked Ruth about their priorities during this strange and challenging time.
1: Yeah, Chris, as I said earlier, they fancy words, but our stakeholder engagement really, really kicked in and, and proved its worth. Immediately, we were in talks with DEFRA, through our uh, collaborations and our partners. Immediately, we were writing to George Eustace, the DEFRA minister, to confirm that we were part of that supply chain, uh, the food supply chain that had to keep going. We wrote with Keith um, to express the, the real importance of grounds care and keeping our green spaces open and and how important it was for mental health and well-being. And we're still writing to the government on a very regular basis and receiving replies because that's where the government sees the interface with industry. Um, it's working with lots and lots of different alliances and it's working with lots and lots of different groupings, trade association groups or otherwise. To find the mood of industry. So the interface that we provide from members back to government is really important. I think also trade associations need to understand, you know, our information is directly getting information from our members and putting it out in aggregated forms or anonymously, but back out to members. And when you dealing with something like this, which is a vast unknown, the first thing you want to know is what everybody else is doing as well. Is it just you that's suffering or struggling or not understanding what the government says? And the answer is no, it's not just you, you know, and that's really been quite an important role that the Trade Association has has played for its members, I think, during the whole pandemic. We've got a lot of support from our members. Uh, They really step up, they really um, engage with with all our activities and as I said we we maintained all our services and the trade association does play that representative role but never more so than in a pandemic such as this you know where it, ha- it it provides that conduit between all the other alliances that are out there and the official bodies policy decisions um all sorts of things like that and and again if you take COVID-19 out of that? Brexit. We're all now moving on to another subject. COVID-19 is still relevant, but can we do something else now for a change? So we're all looking at Brexit and the implications of Brexit. The implications of no extension and the customs plans that that we're proposing, the side of the EU, what they're proposing. There's always something that's relevant and, and, and is necessary for our members take stock of um to run their businesses it's so information streams are always fighting
0: and who would have thought um just before christmas that we'd be yearning to talk about brexit
1: well <laughs> but we thought we might have some answers on brexit because whether you liked it or not you know boris was in charge and he was doing his own he was going to go his way and we were all going to go that way because we had no choice but at least we had some direction from somewhere, whether you liked it or not. Oh, uh,
0: great. Uh, Keith, um, Bagma is a, is part of a group of trade associations, as you said, of independent retailers spread across a number of, of sectors. How do you feel that Bagma's role has been during the last few months?
2: Really, we play a more supportive role for industry, supporting our dealers. But uh, as I said earlier, it's being reactive to what they want to do. So uh, HR issues, finance issues, things like that. So individually with members, we can deal with that on a one-to-one basis because of what we do as a group, I suppose. And individually within in the industry, we can find out things for people. I suppose, you know, directly supporting because we have our own bank, we have a lot of members who use our bank, and our bank, with the smallest bank in the UK. Sorry, it's not an advertising session. We've done about a hundred payment holidays on finance agreements, mostly for vehicles and things. Our legal side, yes, as a member, we have a free um, legal advice and HR advice built into the membership. We don't just use that for our members. If somebody rings up and wants some help, we'll help them if we can. So the legal side of things has been really busy developing risk assessments, you know, COVID responsible areas for businesses that are that are open and we're we're going to reopen. A lot of HR issues surrounding furloughing and potentially into the future redundancies, holidays. How do you deal with holidays and people are being furloughed? You know, do they need to take holidays? So a lot of background legal advice and financial advice we to give and generally supporting the industry as a whole. So, you know, as, as uh, the AEA have done, as we've done through the um, video calls with this dealer, listening to people and trying to find out things. And we each pick up different types of information. That we, we've been sharing so that there's a commonality in the support we're all the industry, more a supportive role and an individual support to our members. And that's continuing now because of our involvement with our group. We've been involved in raising the limits on um, credit cards on machines from £30 to £45. So we're actually involved in that as a group, which is interesting, because I didn't know that until recently. So there's an awful lot of things that go on in the backbone, sometimes come out in the fore, but usually they're just passed on by government government departments and and Ruth would have the same issue it would all time working to get this support, but actually, you don't get any credit for it because it comes out in the public domain, and they don't exactly turn around and say or the AEA helped with this, or BAGMA helped with that. There's an awful lot, we all do, that nobody really knows. It just happens eventually, and there's there's been a lot of that going on. So and particularly from a retail point of view, recently I've been looking at what we're doing within BIRA to see how it affects people within the machinery businesses, and actually getting things swapped over and... So we can let people know. Big support role, I think, is the best way of putting it.
0: Like so many industries, the agriturf machinery industry is constantly grappling with issues of recruitment. It can no longer rely on attracting those with a farming or rural background. It has to think outside the box to appeal to those with the potential skills to meet the demands of a rapidly comp and high-tech industry. In an episode published in February 2021, I talked to Jeremy Gibbs, the founder of Forces Farming, an organisation set up to educate and attract service leavers about the opportunities offered by a career in land-based engineering. With Jeremy was Will Foster, who had spent 23 years in the British Army, finishing his service as a tank commander and technical training manager at Bovington Camp in Dorset. Will got his first taste of land-based engineering by doing a short stint of work experience with John Deere dealership Ben Burgess, before being offered a full-time post with Massey Ferguson dealership Chandler's. Since this recording, Will has moved back to Ben Burgess as a service technician, but I started by asking Jeremy about the origins of Forces Farming.
3: So Forces Farming Limited was founded around about June 2019, while I was working as self-employed on a couple of farms and doing harvest jobs and things. And I was running it on the side, literally just signposting people to opportunities in agriculture. And then about 12 months ago, the website went live. So early 2020, um, I had the structure in place of getting people out onto farms. And then, of course, we hit lockdown and I had to push pause on on any group meetings on farms and things like that. But at the same time, I set up last year in June, my community interest company, which is called Forces Into Agriculture, which then funds the activities that I'm doing on farms with service leavers.
0: Does that mean to give those that have no real knowledge of what happens within agriculture an insight into the industry to see whether they like it in the first place?
3: Yeah, exactly that, Chris. For me, before anyone looks at moving into a new industry, you really want to do a bit of reconnaissance. Find out what are the opportunities there? What are the hours like? What are the working conditions like? Being honest with people, what's what's the salary like? What's the pay grade like? What's the holidays like? But also, if I have people coming onto farms and they enjoy, let's say in this case, the, the mechanical side of the business, then what opportunities are there as in that area as a career path sure so yeah that that insight for me is the first step in in getting onto farms understanding from farmers what they do and and what else is associated with the industry that is agriculture
0: do you have any sense of the scale of should we call it your market the total number of service leavers who are maybe currently looking for posts their their average age and Indeed, those might have shown some interest in agriculture.
3: Yeah, I did some work in the past with Oxfordshire County Council, and they said there's around three or four hundred people that are interested in getting into the rural sector and working outdoors, whether that's forestry, fishing, agriculture, or engineering. And realistically, the average age of a service leader, believe it or not, is, is 29 So there's a huge opportunity for people coming into agriculture at the right age, spend 30 plus years working in the industry. Yeah. So for me, one of the key things of anyone coming in to the agricultural sector is the ability to learn and understand what needs doing. Let's say grasp that task and get on with it as a job, basically, combined with the timeliness, that sort of thing. And and also problem solving and things like that. A great few friends of mine that have served have said, and will have say this as well, in the armed forces, you've got to get the job done with the tools you've got. You can't just request a new part on the side of the field, for example, and, and, and wish that you had this spanner and that spanner. You've got to make things work. So getting the job done, arriving on time and being able to learn quickly for me are the key things going into
4: agriculture. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And my other guest today is Will Foster. My name is Will Foster. I left the army
4: after 23 years of service. My last posting was at where I worked as a technical training instructor on Challenger 2 main battle tank and a couple of other vehicle platforms. I entered my resettlement period whilst I was posted down there uh, and subsequently having now left the army. I was 17 when I signed on the dotted line and did a couple of months free for. Queen of Country. Before I started, then entered into uh, man service, and from the bottom up, you you start off as a driver, which was probably the biggest bit to join the Royal Armoured Corps. Wanted to go and play with tanks, and then from there, you you see like your career progression open out in front of you. You have a a, a choice, really, which way is you want to be going? Influenced so that both parties are having their scratches itched, if you like, with the <laughs> requirements. And I chose to go down the avenue of driving and maintenance. Yeah. There were telecommunications and then weapon systems as well. Cool. From there you'd go into a like an, an operator's seat and fight the weapon systems. And then from there you would transition into a tank commander's role where you would be responsible for the other members of your crew that made up that vehicle and then progression from there would be a tripside at slot where I uh, did that over in Afghanistan. you have a, a fleet of four vehicles uh, and you would be responsible for ensuring that they were maintained properly. Sure. Uh, logistics were all countable, fed in, fed and watered and bullet. Um, and then from there, I went into going over to Bovington. So. I strongly feel that the transferable skills made from like a military context into a civilian one are are totally there. Investors in people has been around for quite a while now, that scheme. And that that really shone through with my time at Bobbington. And they put me through my adult teaching qualifications up to level five certificate in lifelong learning sector. And the platform and the format that we used to teach to was highly appealing to a lot of other technical trainers.
0: And was... Agriculture on your radar at any time? Was that your first choice?
4: Not whilst I was in the army. No. As a kid, yes, I was very interested in it.
0: So, did you manage to unearth any opportunities to get any work experience within the industry?
4: Yeah, actually, I did. Initially, my plan was to go to the National Innovation uh, Training Development Centre for National Rail, and there was a couple of service leaders there, but COVID got in the way. So that got curtailed, and I had to remain flexible and dynamic and readjust slightly, and I didn't want to waste a window of opportunity that I had to offer up my services free of charge just in exchange for a bit of experience. And so I put the feelers out there with a few companies locally and I actually got a bite from a company called Ben Burgess. Uh, the, the branch manager phoned me up, I'd just like to take you up on the offer. Uh, when can you come? I was on a Friday afternoon. I was like, you're about an hour away, mate. I will be there in a, an hour and 10. <laughs> like, no. can we wait till Tuesday, please? I'm <laughs> like, oh God, really? Okay. <laughs> so I had to calm myself down, wait till Tuesday. And I went along, was like you know, bedazzled by all the glitz and glamour that was what they gave me. And I was like, yeah, I really like this. Like I say, it was reaching out to people. I think Jeremy actually put me in contact with people going from like, and reading his blurb about how forces farmer conducted their business, it was that link between them and us, as it was back then, that he was closing that gap, and that gap was closed up pretty quickly and efficiently by them. So I he he had done a bit of background research and found out some names and uh, passed them along to me. Uh, I think he may have even had a couple of uh, quiet words in their uh, shell, like uh, yes. this guy's interested, uh, and it and it came out with
0: fruit. Good. So ultimately, networking really
4: absolutely,
2: yeah,
0: and uh, obviously your timing is absolutely immaculate as you've come into it with the lockdowns and covid but uh, what what skills or training have you managed to undertake uh, bearing in mind that a lot of the training facilities are closed at the moment uh, how, how have you got on and your post Chandlers is one of i presume of a service technician
4: that's correct, yeah, the service and technician you No, know, so going into the glass door and all the online resources. I was reading the job specs and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds very similar to what it is that I've been teaching. So I was like, oh, if you can teach it, you, you should be able to do it as well. So I'd gone for a couple of technical training jobs and not got them. And I was like, okay, fair enough. There must be a reason why. And I concluded that it was because of the experience on products, not necessarily on the method of delivery, but on product knowledge. Yeah. So I was like, "You've got to ground yourself a little bit now. Reset yourself back to zero, and then build on those foundations." So the only place you can do that one is get back on the shop floor. Yeah. So I then started looking for servicing technician jobs, uh, and Chandler's promptly when the, when a window of opportunity broke yeah. within the COVID restrictions, phone yes. got pulled me in for an interview, and they gave the green light.
0: Yeah. What's your initial impressions been, both of sort of your current job or the industry as a whole? Does it, you've said about being excited about going for work experience. Does that excitement still hold? I'm totally enjoying it. I'm
4: I'm, I'm confident that I've made the right decision and I look forward to going to work. It sounds cliche, but uh, I'm lucky. I'm lucky in the fact that uh, I'm doing what it is that I enjoy doing and it's able to pay some of the bills.
0: What do you think, coming from a a quite a a lengthy service background, what attributes do you think you bring to a company in, let's say, the agricultural engineering sector, or indeed any sector? What do you think is your main selling point as a potential employee? I think with
4: people being able to see what it was that we were doing in the public eye and then abroad as well. The, the respect that you're able to get from people just for having served your country. You've got your organization, you've got your respect for others, self of commitment. was a mantra that will into an interest about all these attributes that we would have as a service person that, uh, that you could then shift across into civilian society. Punctuality, it's a simple one, but it's a respectful one as well. Sure. Being smartly dressed or how to talk to people appropriately through the willingness and the desire and the drive to get things done. Yeah. It might take a little bit longer if you're unsure and stuff, and I've come across with this one firsthand over the last couple of days where it's taken me a little bit longer, but that's because I'm learning that process, not in the stage of refining it yet. And then over time, the more experience that you build. The quicker you're going to get at it. So trustworthiness, as well, I think, is, is is another characteristic that you can pull across as well.
0: Have you had exposure on farms and that to customers, and are they interested in your route into Chandlers? I,
4: I, I, I originally started at Chandlers in the summer and what well, during a I, I, although you don't get very many quiet periods during the summer and harvest and what have I mean, you, but there was. Where, The slight null in battle, as it were. Uh, I was sent out to one farm (laughs) and I had to take it on trust that a friend would take me. He used to go out and do a water pump for me on a massive Ferguson. And I was like, look, mate, I'm happy to go and do it, but I need you to tell me that you know that I can do it. I don't want to go out there and fail uh, because it will get egg on our face uh, and it will be more detrimental than And he was like, yeah, you with the technical ability and knowledge that you've got, you can easily go out and do this one. So I trusted him and I went and did it. And within the, the following week, another ex-vet, actually, he was in the Royal Marines that I worked with a few generations before me. He was like, oh, I've been hearing some good stories about you. And it was just <laughs> those off the cuff, flippant comments that were mm. meant in a, 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 a appraisal kind of way that meant the most to me. Because the farmer, that, in this instance, I went out and I was like, look, oh, mate, I'm not being funny. This is my first ever job doing this outside of what it is that I did before. And he, he was like, oh, what did you do? I was like, to, to dumb it down a little bit, I was a tank commander. <laughs> yes. And he was like, oh, yeah, that is a bit different, isn't it? I was like, yeah, it is, you're right. We'll see what we can do, and I'm sure we'll get started by the end of the day. I was a little bit late home that night, but I definitely drove home with a smile on my face, having achieved something totally brand new.
0: And here... I'm going to insert a brief soundbite from an episode published recently featuring Andrew Finlay talking about resilience. Resilience in business and in your personal life. Andrew has taken part in many ultra-running races in the UK and overseas, and they asked
5: him, what was the key to resilience? As, as I said earlier, just knowing that somebody's around you, this, this year when I was doing the race, they're pretty trotting the There are times... Because you're out there for six and a half days, it's just so hard. You sleep on average a half an hour a night. So you're you're, in the whole week, you only sleep for six hours. And so you're utterly spent. And sometimes you'd be on a glacier, 3,000 meters in the middle of the Alps with not a soul in sight other than your teammates. And your phone will ting. You suddenly come into an area where you've got some reception. Your phone will ting. It'll be a friend at home who's just sent a text, and so I can see your dot on the map, because you've got a tracker, and people can follow you. I can see your dot on the map, and this is three o'clock in the morning. He says, I'm just sat watching you, and I'm just cheering you on. Just keep going, and then the final thing again, and the thing again, and suddenly you get like 20 messages hitting your phone. Yeah, you can't really read, them. I've got time to read them all carefully, but to see all these people that are at home in England, in the middle of the night, watching your dot, And knowing they're thinking of you and cheering you on from afar is a real lesson, how much it gives you a lift. They thought, you know they're going to stop. They don't let anybody down. It's it's such a huge boost.
0: And in the final section of these extracts from the Inside AgriTurf Back catalogue, we pick up on the turf business. And those who use the incredible array of machinery and equipment to ensure that stadiums, sports grounds, golf courses, and the like are safe and in tip top condition. In May 2022, I caught up with someone who has taken charge of two of the most famous and iconic stadiums and the hope of different sports. Keith Kent. Spent many years on the grounds team at Leicester City before being appointed as a grounds manager at Manchester United's old Trafford Stadium in nineteen eighty seven, where he stayed for fifteen years, before taking over the same role at Twickenham, the home of English rugby. So first I asked Keith how the opportunity at Manchester United came about.
6: Saw a job ad that, and it was a P.O. box in London. And I thought, do you know what? I'll go. So I wrote after this job, P.O. box in London and thinking to myself, if it's Tottenham or Arsenal, I'm going. If it's, if it's Wimbledon at that time, I'm not going. I, you know, I, I don't want to carry the ball off on a stretcher. And it came back and it was Manchester United. And I opened the letter in the air on the back of my neck, and stood on end because it was a, Complete. It was a dummy and a half, and I went up to Old Trafford for the day. I had an interview for about four hours with Ken Merritt, the then assistant secretary, and we got on really well. And and I just, you know, sometimes in life, Chris, you just know this is right. Uh,
0: And this
6: is Sir Sir Alex's days, was it? Yes, Sir Alex had been there twelve months. I got there in August '87. He'd got
0: there in 86 November. So I followed him in. Presumably you got the job, because we know. But uh, did the stakes go up because of the uh, attention, which is obviously from all over the world on Manchester United and then Old Trafford? Yeah. Yeah, that was the biggest learning curve I had. You're okay
6: being a groundsman because you know what you're talking about and you've got people in the game, you've got reps and whatever, who you know or you know their companies and you know who you're dealing with. But all of a sudden, I've got microphones put under my nose from Manchester radio, uh, Piccadilly radio, uh, people who were, who were just making a living out of doing interviews, ITV, BBC. And it was just never ended. Manchester evening news interview, we did a photograph, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, you have to be careful that you don't become a celebrity because you're still the groundsman who was on Beaver Drive. Hmm. And that's what I, I maintained. And the United helped me. When I went, they said to me, Keith, don't go in a hotel. Don't go in a hotel way, find somewhere to live. We'll put you in digs with some young players. And they put me in digs near the Cliff Training Ground with a Mrs. K. And she had got a young lad called Daniel Graham, and a couple of other lads. And it was like, it was like being at home. I, although I must say, she. She wouldn't get up and make my breakfast because I was at work for 8 o'clock. I used to have a bowl of cool plates on my own. Yeah.
0: And how long were you at, uh, at Old Trafford then, uh, Keith? 15 years. Yeah.
6: I, was, I joined in 87 and I left in 2002.
0: And the move, the last move into the RFU at Twickenham, how did that come about? Would you believe I was headhunted by the
6: then director of the stadium, Richard Knight, Richard Knight, I met, he did a tour of big, big stadiums, Newcastle, Wembley, Liverpool. He went to all the big stadiums and he wanted to know, because the Twickenham was going to be developed, it was going to become a wraparound stadium. And he wanted to know how to look after a wraparound stadium. And he came with Jeff Parrish. Do you remember Jeff Parrish from the STRI? Yes. And... I knew Jeff and Jeff introduced me and I got on well with Richard. I I wasn't looking for a job. I just told him how I did this, that, and the other. And a few months later, I got a call from a a firm of headhunters saying that Twickenham wanted to interview me. And I thought about it and I thought, well, my mum always taught me to be polite and, and courteous, so I will go for the interview. And I went down there and Richard Knight, was charming, took me for a run round Richmond, showed me the pitch, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know what? I've been in football 32 years. Why not? Hmm. And that's, and, and one of the best things is I don't understand rugby. I'd hosted rugby at Old Traffic. We had England versus New Zealand, if you remember. And I, I'd played rugby briefly at school four or five games. But the only rule I really understood is that you can't pass it forward. So it, I thought I could do this because I'm never going to get wound up. I'm never going to shout at the referee. And I'm never going to worry about who wins or loses because I don't understand it. All I know is my grass is being played off. and that's how I did it. But funny, a, a funny story, months later, somebody asked Richard Knight why he chose me. And it he was a great fellow, Richard Knight. He said, Well, we wanted one of the top three groundsmen in the country, and they weren't available, so we went for Keith. <laughs> uh
0: and, and Keith, was there um much difference between the pitch itself and your maintenance regime at Twickenham compared with what you had at at Old Trafford? Yeah, the the the, the most
6: striking difference was at the time, in 2002, the south stand was very, very small and had gaps either side, if you remember. And it got a lot of light. That was a big, big difference. And the other one was that the grass was longer. And, of course, and, and it's a deaf statement, but you realize it when you're there, you're not worried about the roll of the ball because the ball doesn't roll. It's all played out of the hand. So the objective is, is to make sure that players have good traction. So it was about having a dry pitch with a bit longer grass on. But as, as my job developed, Twickenham and I began to understand more and more. I remember the England manager, Clive Woodward. I went to him and I said, what do you want, Clive? Tell me what you want. And he said, I want a stern, fast trap. So I caught the grass. <laughs> As yeah. simple as that. We yeah. cut the grass. Yeah, we went from something like three inches, which is seventy-five millimeters, down to forty millimeters. Yeah, and in, and towards the spring, not always in the six nations because it can be cold. But to Barbar's game in in May and June, we were down to twenty-five, sometimes twenty millimeters. Were you? So it was it was almost like playing football. It was that good.
0: I talked to a, a head groundsman at a stadium some years ago, uh, which hosted both um, league football and uh, top-class rugby, and I was interested to know whether or not, how, how long it took him to recover a pitch immediately after a game and, and, and which was the most challenging. And surprisingly, he said it was the football because of the sliding tackles and so on. Was that your experience? I think I think the thing is, it's is rugby... Is more unpredictable. It's random
6: chaos. that can have a scrum anywhere or a maul anywhere on the pitch. So there's no set pattern. You know, like in olden days, the diamond of a football pitch used to wear out because that's where the play was. The two-goal miles are the middle. Football became more of a passing game with less tackling. Yes, there are more kicks, especially, I'll never say, Manchester United, the first team could play and there'd be a few scars. If we had an FAU cup tight, it was absolutely cut up to bits because the kids were flying in. Yes. Whereas rugby, it it really wasn't any different. Other than that, I must say, the ladies don't make as much mess because I don't think they have the weight.
0: Uh, but rugby is, is played very much on the feet these days compared to what it was, uh, say, 40 years ago. Yeah, uh, because the uh, the forwards pretend they're backs, and the backs um, often within as as forwards. So it's a much more agile game than it was in the past. Yeah, yeah. I, I must say, I got more positive
6: feedback from rugby players. Football players are okay, but it's either too wet, too dry, too long. They're uh, rather rather particular. The rugby players appreciated that it was shorter appreciated that it was firmer because it was a match pitch there weren't training on it so it could tend to be that bit harder you yeah. know especially after we had had a desktop system in 2012 and the rugby players used to love I'm not just saying that they used to love coming to Twicken uh, all the all the internationals did and, and all the cup finals
0: so there you have it an insight into some of the diverse people who have graced the Inside AgriTurf podcast over the past three years. All of them with fascinating accounts of their roles within the industry we call land-based engineering. And there will be another selection from the archives next month. I'm Chris Biddle, thanks for joining me, and this is Inside AgriTurf.